Well, you can turn to the teaching notes. We're going to do uh, part two of what I began last week, a message called Participating in the Miracle of End Time Unity. We're going to look at Romans 4, verse 1 to 4 today in a deeper way. And again, this is part two, so if you missed part one, you can go back in the church archives or on YouTube and catch that message, and there are teaching notes available for both of these online as well. Uh, I'm going to read this, and then we'll pray. Romans 14, verse 1, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. One believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls, indeed he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And then ahead to Romans 15, verse 5, this is the, the culmination of a prayer that Paul is driving to in this, this theme throughout the chapter. May the God of peace and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask for a spirit of revelation to touch us, to touch the body of Christ. We ask that your word would open to us, that you would bring fresh insight, that you would bring fresh impartation uh, as we seek to walk in a greater measure of wisdom, as we seek to walk in a spirit of unity and brotherly love toward one another. We ask that you would help us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. I have a brief announcement that there is childcare available tomorrow night at the service. Mike told me backstage, he's like, you're gonna go out there, you're gonna forget this. I'm like, I'm not gonna forget it. He was almost right. There is childcare up to age 10, so just know that. All right, paragraph A. Um, Jesus, in his prayer, his great prayer of John 17, prayed that the Father would bestow upon the body of Christ um, an incredible sense of unity and power and love. And, and that we believe that ultimately culminate, culminates in the generation of the Lord's return. Um, he's gonna perform the greatest social miracle of history as he brings nearly a billion believers. Now that's a made up number, but it's some very, very large amount as he brings, brings a billion believers into a deep and profound sense of unity and love and purpose together. I mean, a billion people all on the same page, walking in agreement, walking in love. This prayer that Paul prays, one mind, one mouth, being like-minded toward one another. I mean, this is remarkable. Now, the context that this is gonna happen is also the context of the great harvest of souls, where more people will be added to the kingdom than any other time in human history. And so spiritual unity is necessary for world harvest, for the great harvest. Let's look at this. Jesus connects these ideas together in John 17 and verse 23. He's praying to the Father. He says that they would be made perfect in one. And so as the body of Christ is brought into spiritual maturity, that's what perfect means, spiritual maturity, that they would enter into a deep sense of unity and fellowship, unity with one another, unity with the Godhead. 
Now, this is where he introduces this idea of souls and harvest being connected to this. He says, that the world might know that you have sent me. So as the body of Christ comes into a greater sense of unity, the outcome will be that the world will know that Christ has been sent by the Father. They're intrinsically connected together. So in the adverse, if the body of Christ is fractured and disputing and not in unity, it would go to reason that the world would not know that Jesus had been sent by the Father. And we want the world to know that he had been sent by the Father, that he has been sent by the Father, and that you loved them as you have loved me. And so we see the divine impartation of love that's there. Now, John 17, as you well know, is Jesus' prayer prior to going to the cross. And on that same night, he actually introduces this long conversation he has in the book of John, he introduces it with the same idea, unity unto harvest, connected with love. Look at John 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus says to them, now this is earlier on in that same night, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you would love one another. How, would, how are we supposed to love one another? As I have loved you, or put in the word, received as i've received you i want you to receive one another look at uh, verse 35 jesus says by this the outcome as you receive one another and love one another in the way that i love you the outcome will be that people know that all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another so in a similar way, he begins the conversation by saying, hey, unity and love unto people knowing that you're my disciples, and he ends with a prayer, unity and love so that the world would know that I've been sent by my Father. See, the church is a witness of the power and the glory of God. But not just the church, like the institution, this ethereal, whatever, Christian community and your Christian relationships are a witness to the power of God and the saving grace that comes through Jesus Christ alone. That's why we have to take them very seriously. We must take Christian relationships very seriously and, and body life and the way in which we think about the church and pray for the church and engage in the church and serve the purposes of God through his ecclesia, that is the church, we must be very careful and, and, and strategic about the way in which we do that because it's connected to the way in which the world will see God and know if we are disciples of Christ. They're all connected together. And we can't just treat it flippantly. And we can't just talk about unity as if it's this big ethereal thing and swoosh. The Holy Spirit's just going to make us all love one another and fall in love with one another. There's actually a part that we're to play today in walking in that eschatological unity that will come more and more uh, in the days ahead. Paragraph B. There are many threats to Christian unity. Because the enemy wants to fracture the church and get them arguing about a whole bunch of things and get them fighting with one another. I mean, who wants to join a church that's filled with a bunch of people that are fighting with everyone? Nobody wants to do that. It's like, hey, welcome, you know, you want to come to my church? Like, we're having a big argument, uh, you know, for the next, I don't know, 100 years. You want to come? No. 
Why would I want to do that? I wouldn't want to do that. See, the unbeliever is meant to come into Christian fellowship, to Christian community, and be so overwhelmed at the spirit of love and unity and generosity that's happening, and they can actually see, see differences. They can see diversity and yet unity of purpose and unity of core belief. And that's what the unbeliever is supposed to experience. Now, there are actually many testimonies uh, of believers now that were actually touched by the power of Christian unity. We want that all the more. I mean, this whole thing is headed towards the body of Christ being walking in such profound love and power and preference of one another that the nation of Israel will be provoked to jealousy and turn to Christ to receive him as their Messiah because of Christian love and Christian power. This is what we're walking towards. Now, in the generation that the Lord returns, there's going to be many that are in these close relationships that will betray one another, and their love will grow grow cold. So it's very interesting that in the time of escalating unity and love and preference, there's also escalating betrayal and animosity and a falling away from the faith. I think the Lord did that intentionally. He did that on purpose. Now let's look at this verse in Matthew 24. It says, then many will be offended and they'll betray one another and hate one another. Now, if you're betraying someone, it's someone that you were close to previously. You're not betrayed by someone you don't know. You're not betrayed by an enemy. That's not betrayal. That's mistreatment. That could be persecution, but that's not betrayal. Betrayal is when someone that is near and dear to you turns on you, you know, stabs you in the back, so to speak. And obviously, we see that very clearly in the scripture through the life of Judas, who betrayed Christ. Now, look at this, verse 11. Now, it says, then. Then means after, because of. So there's increase of offense. Then there's the increase of betrayal and hatred, and then many false prophets arise to deceive many. I want to propose to you that false prophets aren't just people in black cloaks declaring that they are false prophets and posting all manner of media and making wild predictions and all these. What about social commentators who are trying to predict the future, make sense of the present, but they're doing it without the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God? You can be a false prophet by merely being a prolific, well-known social commentator. You're trying to make sense of what's going on. You have a moral authority based on your ideology, and you're trying to convince everyone that you're right and that your predictions of the future will be correct. That's false prophecy. Because if you're doing it disconnected from the heart of Christ and a prophetic spirit related to the word of God, so, so false prophecy, I believe, is already increasing right now as many are trying to make sense of what's happening in a culture that is being more and more marked by offense, betrayal, hatred, and animosity toward one another. So as betrayal increases, the false prophecy will increase, the social commentary will increase, and these people have massive followings. And they're saying what their group that's following them wants to hear. They're not dumb. 
If they say the wrong thing, then their group unfollows them and they lose money and influence and power. So they don't do that. They say exactly what their ideological group wants to hear. They're in it to help themselves, ultimately. Now, because of this, in verse 12, lawlessness is going to abound. There's gonna be rampant sin. And then it's gonna lead to the love of many that are growing cold. Now, the love of many growing cold is not just a familial love or a, a friendship love. It's love for God. It's a departure from the faith. So let's look at the progression. As the culture more and more is offended at everything and everyone for every reason, it's gonna lead to betrayal. It's gonna lead to hatred. It's gonna lead to the rising up of commentary about what's coming and why it's all happening, disconnected from the word of God, false prophecy, and then it's gonna cause more lawlessness to abound, and then the love of many is gonna begin to grow cold. That's the progression Jesus lays out in Matthew 24. Now, I don't have this in the notes, but if you go back to verse uh, six and seven per se, Jesus begins to highlight there are certain things that are gonna happen globally that are going to lend to this rise of offense. He names two things. Number one, plagues, viruses, pestilence. And the second thing that he names is the rise of ethnic hostility, ethnos versus ethnos. Nation against nation. So as we experience global turmoil related to viruses and plagues and the increase of racial hostility and tensions between ethnic groups, it's going to, verse 10, lead to offense, lead to betrayal, lead to hatred. This is what's happening uh, from my standpoint right now, this is, this is, I see this in the word of God and I look out at the prevailing culture, this is what I see. And this puts the body of Christ in a very precarious position because if we're to be walking towards unity and love and like-mindedness and serving one another for the sake of the kingdom around the core essentials of the faith, then we have to be careful to not grow in offense and start betraying one another and undermines the purposes of God. So we've got to be aware of this. Paragraph C, Paul calls the church in Rome to awaken from spiritual slumber. Uh, the prevailing sins in the body of Christ in the church in Rome were causing her to become spiritually lethargic and asleep. And he begins to prescribe what it takes to get out of that spiritual lethargy, that whole Romans 3, or not Romans 3, rather the uh, uh, Revelation 3 Laodicean spirit of just need. And the Lord says, well, I'm just actually your blind, poor, naked, wretched, miserable. He says to get out of that, he says you need to repent of sin, your sins, actually, and a lot of people think that to wake up spiritually means that we're supposed to go figure out what's wrong with the other people and tell them their sins. The Lord says, I want you to figure out your sins and I want you to repent of them and walk out of them. Because as you engage in these sins, as you engage in sin, you become spiritually dull. You become spiritually asleep 
and you actually begin to resist the purposes of God without even knowing that you're resisting them because you're asleep. And the Lord wants us to be awakened. He wants us to be like sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times in which we live. We're meant to be sons of the light, sons of the day, walking in a spirit of understanding, not troubled by the prevailing culture, not influenced by the prevailing of the culture. Kingdom culture, kingdom understanding, kingdom confidence. My life is not my own. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner in this world. I'm a citizen of heaven. My hope is laid up for me in heaven. There's a king who is coming to make all the wrong things right. He's coming. And my allegiance is to that king more than anything else more than my own family, more than mother or daughter, more than brother or father. My allegiance lies with Jesus, and I'm not gonna compromise on his kingdom and his ways. So he begins to describe, Paul does these works of darkness that are contributing to this spiritual lethargy. I'm reading in paragraph C. And there's sins that begin to be highlighted, and in particular, two of them at the end, strife and envy. Strife and envy. The word strife has to do with quarreling, disputing, wrangling with one another. And the word envy is actually connected to a word that describes boiled up emotion, ratcheted up emotion. He says, you're disputing with intense emotions. Look it up. You're disputing with intense emotions. And because of it, you're going to spiritual sleep. So he's like, I, he's calling the body of Christ. We gotta eject from the disputing and the striving with energy and with anger toward one another. We've gotta eject from that so that we can be spiritually awake and that we can walk in the purposes of God as they lie before us in this generation. He begins to highlight one of them in particular. He begins to latch on to that strife, the strife, the dispute, the wrangling. Now, of everything that he could have touched on, this is the thing the apostle, who's this master builder of the early church, he knows what he's doing. He's on a mission and assignment from the Lord. He says, this is one of the primary things that is causing the body of Christ to walk in spiritual compromise, spiritual boredom, and undermine the purposes of God and entirely miss it. And they're setting themselves up for a fence and betrayal towards one another. They don't even realize it yet. Like who wants to talk about strife and envy? But here we are. Okay, Romans 14, 1. Paul says, receive one who's weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Now, when we begin to receive one who's weak in the faith and not enter into disputes over doubtful things, it means that we're casting off the works of darkness from the end of chapter 13. That's what it means. This is how we cast off the works of darkness, particularly the work of darkness called strife and envy, we cast that off by receiving one another in accordance with the grace of God. Now, like today, the early church was a melting pot of race, creed, culture, preference. It was a great social experiment because 
You had all of these people from all these different backgrounds and ethnicities. You had pagans with religious people. You had Jews with Corinthians, with Romans. I mean, all of these different experiences, people had tattoos and piercings and all, you know, all of these things that other people were like, I don't, you know, know if I like that as much, you know. And so the meet and greet times, I would imagine, were very interesting, you know, during that time in the early church. And you had the removal of classism in the kingdom of God. Amazing. You had the remove of, of, of the ability for, for a man and a woman to stand next to each other and worship the same God. For a master and the slave to stand next to each other and, and worship God together. The same God in the same service. There wasn't like assigned seating. Rich people at the front, poor people at the back. Everybody's meeting in homes together and they're all glorifying the same God, singing the same songs and everyone's on equal footing because that's what the cross does. It brings us all to equal footing. Everyone's guilty and everyone's to worship. <laughs> that's just, that's as simple as it gets. And when you're at the cross, you can't look around and like wonder about who's not there and like, well, you know, when are they gonna get here? Like when you're at the cross, you're confronted with the sufferings of our Lord and the glories of the age to come. It's very humbling to live there. So we should live there. Well, all of this melting pot led to many collisions as this new community is forged, and it's not just forged, but it's forged in the fire of Christian persecution and paganism. So the Roman Empire is persecuting the body of Christ. The Jewish zealots, they're persecuting the body of Christ. And then you have all manner of paganism and immorality and drunkenness and all of this stuff, idolatry, just rampant in the world. And the Lord says, this is the perfect time to call forth my people. This is what I want, because what I'm gonna do is gonna be so dynamically different than what you can get in paganism or Judaism or whatever. It's gonna be so different that when I pull these people out and I put them all in a room together and they're all worshiping me and they're all following me and they're all loving one another and serving one another, it's gonna cut against the cultural norm of the day and people are gonna go, who are these people? I wanna know their God. They walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. They do miracles. They're, they're, they're content with so little. Even when we persecute them, they rejoice. They love and they serve one another. The rich to the poor, the free to the slave, the this to that. They all serve one another in this mutual love and acceptance. There's nothing like this. And that's what the world should see when they see the church. There's nothing like this because it's transcendent, it's of another age. You can't quantify it, you can't qualify it, you can't stop it, you cannot prevail against the body of Christ because it's Christ's body and he will ultimately prevail and bring all things under his feet, right? So in Romans 14, he begins to dial in on this Christian strife, he begins dealing with Christian attitude related to things that are called indifferent things. Or what he says in verse one, they're doubtful things. They're neither commanded in the word of God nor are they prohibited. And I would bet that the majority of our disputes as Christians lie on the peripherals of what are considered doubtful things. It's on the fringes. Like, don't raise your hand, but like, what was the last time you really argued with someone over the divinity of Jesus that was already a believer? It just doesn't happen that much. 
most of our arguments, most of our disputes come around fringe issues connected to our conscience that we believe uh, for a, a number of reasons that are incredibly important and those get thrust to the forefront and then those doubtful things become the majors that we talk about and when we insist on them being fringe things, doubtful things, we put them in the center, we make them the main things, then it causes all sorts of, you know, 18 new denominations come out of that thing. Paragraph C, there are always, uh, on page two, there are always two extremes that are confronting the church, uh, the body of Christ that we want to be aware of. Number one is legalism, and the second one is licentiousness. So we're walking on the path of the gospel. There's always two uh, paths, two ditches that are, that are pulling us like a magnet, either into legalism, adding to the commands of the Lord, or in licentiousness, minimizing the commands of the Lord. What, li- what licentiousness does is licentiousness gives license, that's where that word comes from, gives license to things that are not permitted in the word of God. The word of God has clear boundaries related to sexual expression. And to say that it doesn't is licentiousness. There are certain ways in which the Bible does not define things related to food and drink and the observance of days. And to say that it does and to assist upon those things is religion. Religion adds commandments to the word of God where those commandments are not there. You know what's interesting in Genesis 3.3, when Eve is talking about what went down, she says, the Lord commanded me to not eat of the fruit or touch it. But if you go back and look at the command of the Lord, he didn't say, don't touch it. And in some way, Adam and Eve were the first legalists because they were adding in commandments that were not explicitly there, that were not given by the Lord himself. And so what's happening here is that Paul is beginning to address the spirit of religion and the operation of rules within the church in Rome where people are adding to the commandments of the Lord things that are not there. And it's causing Disputes. Look at this in paragraph D. Paul says, receive one who is weak in the faith. Who are the weak in the faith? Well, firstly, it's important to note that they are in the faith. They are born again believers. They're Christians. And he's saying that their spiritual condition, their maturity before the Lord is one of weakness rather than strength. And he's not saying it in a condemning way, like get stronger, you dummies. He's just stating a fact as it is. If you look at an infant and compare it to a teenager, one is weak and one is stronger. It's just the fact of who he is based on their maturity, right, their growth. And so he's saying receive those that are weak in the faith, Those that are weak in the faith, they are immature concerning New Testament doctrine and practice. They're immature. And then secondly, they're easily excited over doubtful things. And they want to put a lot of stake and a lot of energy into things that are doubtful. And he's saying, let's just 
take a pause on that. It's not that we can't talk about these things. It's that we can't allow these doubtful things to become the central conversation of Christian fellowship in a way that divides us against one another. The weaker, um, they're often more fearful because they want to do the right thing, but they're very anxious about it. In their own heart, they're the, the very, you know, very anxious about, uh, am I disobeying God? Am I, you know, and there's all these men or all these categories that are in our life today that we have to sort through as Christians and they're doubtful things like things like secular music like is it okay or you know when I was growing up it was like tattoos and piercings and like is that permissible is that not you have different people's stances on on medical and medicine and and politics and vaccines and mandates and this and that and all this stuff and so as a believer, we're like confronted with all these issues, and it's not that we can't work through them, it's that we can't let our personal conviction about a doubtful thing destroy one who is weaker in the faith. We can't insist upon it. We're not just to disciple them into like our little niche of belief. Like we've got to disciple newer believers into the main things in God, i.e. the teaching of the scripture. Not just what we're excited about. Not just what the culture's arguing about. Not just about this or about that. We're, we're, we're to disciple people and bring them in to the love and the fellowship of God that we have with him by the spirit in the new covenant. It's easy to think of those <clears throat> that are weak in the faith as Christians that are newer to the Bible. But that's actually not the case of what Paul is identifying here. Sometimes we think of a weak Christian as they just got saved, you know, they're still living with their girlfriend, like, oh no, what, we have to make them move out uh, because they just got born again, you know, and all that. And so we think of them like they're a weak, really weak Christian. That's actually not the group that Paul, interestingly, is talking about here. He actually calls the weak those that knew the Bible really well, particularly those Jews that had just received the new covenant and recognized Jesus as Messiah. They knew the word of God. They were well-versed in it. They had spent years and years and years in it. And the reason that they were called weak was because they were building up extra regulations and rules on top of the word of God and insisting that other people follow those rules and regulations. Paul says that they're weak. Those are the weak Christians. Isn't that interesting? If you were to think about first century Christianity, walk into a local church there and be like point at the weak believer, right? You would probably find the wild like Perinthian dude with the crazy dreads, the wild eyes and like, you know, I don't know what. Like maybe he's like waving a sword around in worship, you know, like wow, that's a, we gotta disciple this guy. Uh, you know, Paul goes in, and it's the exact opposite, actually. He says, actually, you're weak because you don't understand your Christian liberty. You don't understand how, they, how the, the, the new covenant has brought you into a freedom and a liberty in areas while also be restrictive on other areas. And we're to walk in these things with a spirit of, of understanding and a spirit of wisdom. Look at this. He says it in verse 2. For one who believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak 
eats only vegetables. So the one that was restricting their diet out of a conviction or out of an obligation or out of a a commitment to not eat things sacrificed to idols, not eat unclean foods, not eat non-kosher meats, he says that group is the one that is weak in this particular uh, instance. So he's addressing more or less the church crowd that's very familiar with all the rules. That's who he's speaking to. And he's saying, okay, church crowd, you know the Bible, you've been around. When a, when a newer believer comes in, what are you insisting upon for them to grow in and adhere to and be discipled in? And if those are doubtful things, I want you to reconsider what you're doing. Reconsider your approach. Paragraph two, Paul is warning against an attitude that's causing division from the restrictive vegetarian group towards all the meat eaters, and he's also addressing the attitude from the meat eaters towards the restrictive group. He's talking about their attitude. He's not like, let's lay out the Christian menu. That's not on the mind of Paul. He says later down in verse 17, like, hey, the kingdom of heaven is not just like food and drink. We gotta keep the main thing in mind. It's righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Now in verse three, moving on, he's addressing this attitude. He says, let not him who eats, meaning eats meat, with a thankful heart before the Lord, despise him who doesn't eat. When you sit down at the table together, when you're in a small group together, when you're hearing each other's life stories or you're meeting a new person in church and your families get together for the first time and there are differences of conviction and differences of opinion, he says, don't let your heart despise them for their different convictions. The person that's more liberal and free in their convictions, the person that's more kind of buttoned down tight, he says, don't despise one another. Don't let that get in over these doubtful tertiary issues. He says, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. Why? Because God has received him at the end of verse 3. God has received him. I want you to receive one another in the way that I have received you. We gotta agree on some really important things to be considered a part of the body of Christ, right? But there's a whole bunch of things we don't actually have to agree upon. And I don't have to convince you of my stance and you don't have to convince me of yours. You can share it, you can talk about it, but what I have to do is I have to guard my heart from despising people that have different views, different opinions on these secondary issues and not insist that they conform to mine in order to be received by me. Now there's a temptation, number three, to despise one another over these doubtful things. That's the temptation of the heart. There's, a, there's a, a, a sense of superiority that rises up. And you kind of whisper to each other, do you know what, they're, what, the, you know what that family lets their kids watch on media? You won't believe it. 
We whisper it to our spouse. Can you believe that they gave their kid a phone? Huh? Huh? My day we had dial up. You know, I mean, it's like there's all of these things, okay? And I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm making a joke because in the joke, we see how prolific this issue is. And when we make those judgments and we whisper it to our friend or our spouse or whatever it is, what we're doing is we're despising them in our heart. Let's look at what this word despise means. It means to reduce them to nothing, to count them as nothing, or to ignore them entirely. So if there's another believer that has a different custom, a different culture, a different background than I have related to doubtful things, and I just decide, you know what, I'm just gonna ignore it. I'm, not, I'm just gonna ignore them. I don't need anything from them. They could just go do their, you know, weird media stuff over in the weird media church, like down there, like that's, that's them. That's their thing to do. But I'm not gonna receive them in. Paul says that's despising them in your heart. And he's addressing this very attitude with the body of Christ. Now, at the end of verse three, it says this. It says that God has received him. In verse one, Paul calls us, he says, receive one another, receive one who's weak in the faith. And in verse three, he says, the reason why is because God has received them. He's making an appeal that we would look to God for who we're supposed to receive and who we're supposed to reject. Who has God received? And if God has received them, we are called to receive them as well. And he's writing this because he knows how hard it is and how uncomfortable it is. That's why he's writing it. If it were easy, he wouldn't have to write this stuff. He writes a whole chapter and a half about it. A whole chapter and a half. He's writing about, hey, guys, receive one another in the way that God has received you. We go, yeah, 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 yeah. He goes, no, it's a little bit deeper than that. Like you're secluded off in all these cultures and subcultures and penalizing one another and like this person's in and this person's out and that person's really compromised and ugh, I don't know about them and, and there's all of this happening internally. God knows it. Let's just like admit it. Like it's really real. It's really there in our hearts. We're, we're judgmental people over doubtful things. We are. And we don't have to fake like we're not. If we keep faking it, we're never gonna get out of it. And guess what happens? We're in spiritual slumber. Hello. So we've gotta like look at our convictions again. Have your convictions. I mean, we'll talk about that another time, but like have your convictions, but don't argue and dispute about them to where you're tearing down the work of God and tearing down a brother, tearing down a sister because they have a different conviction over something biblically that is doubtful. Now, when God received us to himself, the word receive in the Greek, I looked it up, means I take to myself. We like hearing how God has received us because we like God. God's perfect. So we, we like when perfect people receive us. Awesome. <laughs> we like that God reached down and took us to himself and like pulled us near to his heart and like held us and like affirms us and forgives us and all those things, we like that. But what Paul's appealing to here is that, 
is that we would do the same to one another. Non-perfect people doing that to non-perfect people. To take to myself, to allow them into my heart, into my life, without passing judgment on their hairstyle, without passing judgment on, I'm gonna not go on and on here, but without passing judgment on them, I'm going to receive them. I'm going to allow them into my heart because that's love. And where there's love, there's vulnerability. I'm going to let them in so close that they could actually betray me if they wanted to. I'm going to receive them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to use my gifts to serve them, to serve other believers that have a different cultural expression than I do. I'm going to serve that. I'm going to believe in that. I'm not going to hold them at a distance. I'm not gonna write them off. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not gonna ignore them. I'm gonna say they're a part of the body and I need them. The hand needs the eye and the eye needs the foot. We all need one another because we are the body of Christ. And if you cut off the body, like I said last week, if you cut off the hand, you have a crime scene. We don't want a crime scene. We want a body that is operating in unity and power and love around the core things that Christ has commanded us to do in this generation. Look at verse four. Who are you to judge another servant? He will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. Now to judge over a doubtful thing, to judge another man's servant. And who's the other man's servant? The, the, it's, it's the other believer, it's the brother, it's the sister. They have different preferences than we do. They have different dietary you know, things and emphasis. They have different uh, things that they do around the table with their family, and we don't understand them. We think they're weird, but they think we're weird. He's going, who are you to judge another man's servant? Over these doubtful things is his point. Now, if you're sitting around from a, 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 around the table with a believer, and they're just like, I don't believe Jesus is the son of God, and they say that they're a believer, you go, well, actually, that's, let's talk about that one. That's not a doubtful thing. Like, that's not, that's not a doubtful thing, you know? And so when we judge over a doubtful thing, it's to introduce another standard that is not God's standard. It's an evaluation, we're making an evaluation of their life preemptively. Sometimes we, we often harshly judge newer believers. We're just like, well, be, you know, they're just, they just don't have their act together and da-da-da. But they got like 50 more years to live, like walking out their faith before the Lord. We have confidence that Christ receives us and he makes us stand. That's what he says here. He will be made to stand. Where is he standing? He's standing at the judgment seat of God as approved by God. And if they're a born again believer, they will stand at the judgment seat of God approved by God. God is able to make him stand. So don't introduce another measuring uh, uh, system, another law that you're gonna hold over your brother and your sister that is not God's law, it's your law. But don't judge them in their heart. Don't close off your heart to them. Open your heart. Receive them. Serve them. Pray for them. Give to them. Let's invite out the worship team. To 
to kind of wrap this all up, you know, this is a, this is a practical response to Jesus' prayer for unity right here. Jesus prayed for unity, and we're all excited, and then this is how we're to walk it out. Like, this is a practical way of walking out and fostering Christian unity. It's to not major on the minors. It's not to engage in energized disputes over doubtful things. Look, we're living in a very challenging time in terms of the culture and where things are going right now. It's incredibly challenging. Everybody's stressed out. Just look around, okay? Everybody's stressed out. Everybody is not having it easy right now. There's nobody here that's just like, I am soaring, flying, everything's so easy. All my relationships are working. All the money is flowing. All the opportunities are there. My heart's alive. That, that person's not here. People are happy about that. Look, y'all are clapping like, thank God, they're not here. <laughs> You know, I think at the end of the day, this is a call to extend grace and mercy to one another over these issues, you know? Like nobody in the culture is showing like grace and mercy right now or forgiveness. Everybody's got to hide how weak they are. Everybody's got to hide how messed up they are because if you do, you're going to get canceled. If you show it, boom, you're out. There's no mercy. There's no forgiveness. The world doesn't have mercy and forgiveness to give. What are they giving it on the basis on? Just like ignoring it? No. See, in Christianity, we can extend mercy and grace to one another on the basis of the cross. There's a higher standard. There's another way. There's a way of divine love and acceptance and, and humility and kindness, unusual kindness towards one another. The Lord hasn't called us to be uniform. He's called us to be in unity. And we can look different, sound different, have different preferences and this and that over these doubtful things. It's okay. It's okay. And we got to keep the main thing the main thing so that God's glory and God's work and God's mission can go forth from us as his servants. Amen. Let's stand. Lord, we ask you for this. We ask for the, the patience and the comfort of God to touch us, to touch our disrupted hearts, our disrupted lives, and just how everything is just like on the verge of kind of boiling over right now. The God of patience and comfort would grant you to be like-minded. Lord, we want to be like-minded. We want to be like-minded about what you're doing, about the glory of Jesus, about the new birth, about calling people into your kingdom, about building night and day prayer, about seeing our city transformed through the gospel and through works of service and love and power. Would you guard us from offense? Would you guard us, Lord, from animosity and, and hatred towards one another? We're in the body, Lord. Give us a vision of your body, of your purposes, Lord. Let us see and celebrate and receive 
that which you've received. Worship team's just going to minister for a few minutes here. If you'd like to receive prayer, the Lord's touching your heart on something, I would invite you to come up. We have a ministry team here to pray with you, pray for you, alongside of you. Maybe the Lord's stirring your heart on some of these things. Maybe you're just carrying a heavy burden right now. You're just going through it. Maybe you're sick in your body and you're going, I'm believing the Lord for a breakthrough of healing in my body. We want to invite you to come up just as we go into a time of worship together. Father, we love you and we bless you. We bless the ministry of the Spirit. We bless the beautiful Son, Christ Jesus. Lord, we adore you. We want to walk as you walk, Lord. We want to have our hearts connected to yours in a deeper way. Together in love, we'll come. 